Welcome to the Writer's Room, where funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny words for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, me, Jeff Cesario. Welcome to the Writer's Room. Oh, it's going to be fun. This is, I know that sigh may not have sounded like it, but honestly, that was a sigh of near ecstasy. Uh, Josh and Ben Mankiewicz are here today to talk um, writing and uh, whatever the hell else uh, pops into our heads. Uh, and of course, Josh from Dateline and Ben from uh, Dateline 1947, which is also known as TCM. <laughs> <laughs> you should open Ben some of your um some of your intros with Dateline. <laughs> Just by the way, yeah, where's the little? Yeah, I got a little uh, done. Such a great idea. Yeah, I'll put, that's a I'll, put it, I'll put it right here on this sheet here, which uh, is topped by the the words "Bears Never." It was just a reminder: never bet on the bears. That was my yeah. that was that was my exposure. That was my thought coming out of next last Sunday. So, well, you're hitting uh, you're hitting uh, one of my points right on the head, which is brevity. Uh, yeah, <laughs> bears never is almost perfect. Uh, what the hell? We'll start with you because because um, we've shoehorned right into it. You do these uh, incredible little intros to all kinds of movies on TCM, and yet you find little nooks and crannies for humor. I would say sometimes even jokes that, uh, let's be honest, you don't hear from pretty much any of the other. The, you know, the the noir guy does it. What's his name? The guy who does all the noir stuff. Not familiar. I've never seen the program. Uh, yeah, I don't know that guy. Uh, the, uh, uh, any, Eddie Muller. Oh, Eddie Muller. Eddie Muller, yeah. Eddie Muller yeah. slides it in every now and then. But you are you really go you really have a bit of a comics instinct with those intros where you go, I think I can nut something in here and we'll see what happens. How do you figure out where to where to uh, squeeze in the jokes? Well, you try, you take a sort of, you know, you don't want the, the it to be in a lead in that is sort of more sober than normal. Right. I mean, you could think that that would be a nice way to break it, but, but, but basically if the lead in is about something heavy or serious, I probably won't do it. But if it's, you know, light and it just usually occurs to me as I'm, as I'm mostly rewriting these, I, I, I get them ahead of time. And then I spend a great deal of time reworking them. Um, and now there's definitely, there's, but, but, but real quick, just, just to take stuff. credit and, and blame for the, for the, if there's a joke in there, I wrote it like that's 99% of the likelihood. Cause some of them are very in the, the they would definitely, I mean, I've shown to my daughter sometimes and she's like, man, it's like, you're, it's like you're standing up and fighting for dad jokes until the day you die. Like, so uh, yeah, we're not all masterpieces. Those. Uh, let me just say, uh, the, uh, if there's a joke in there, I wrote it. It's going to be the title of my autobiography. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've now decided because the old one was Bears Never. But that's, that's right. a podcast yeah. with a trillion people listening. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, we're missing the boat completely. We should just yeah. we should just take a massive tangent into the yeah. bears right now and probably yeah. boost all our uh, social yeah. media yeah. accounts. Uh, so Ben, this process is such you get copy and then you yeah. rewrite it. Yeah. For it's been true for, it was true for Robert Osborne. It's true. I mean, you know, we go like my next shoot, which is next week as we tape this, um, I'll be doing, I think 92 scripts 
intros and outros over three days. Um, so, you know, and the intros are anywhere two and a half minutes, the outros a minute, minute, 15, minute, 20. Um, so I would just, I would spend all my time writing that, um, you know, researching it, writing it. So we've always had writers, uh, usually people who have other jobs also, and they, they put it together and that gives me a structure to go off. Right. Sometimes I, the rewrite is fairly complete, but usually I keep their structure real, mostly in the interest of time. I spend the majority of my TCM work time on those scripts, which sometimes so you're, feel, you're, yeah, you're good. Trying to spend as little time as possible on this job is what you're saying. That's right. No, but, but it's weird because you, you write something and then like it, uh, you know, suppose I write like one of those lines and I think, oh man, this is good stuff, right? This is not like, I liked my lead and I just watched it to Jeremiah Johnson. And it was all about how, like, if, if people who didn't want to live in the mountains learned that, that people who look like Robert Redford lived in the mountains, that they would be like, I could live in the mountains. Right. And then, <laughs> but he, but he eats all these livers. So I'd be like there. So I was like, so, Hey man, you know what? I, it's a mountains. It's a air is clean. I could live there. I could learn to like liver. Right. Yeah. You know? And so I write that and I'm amused by that. And I watched it a couple nights ago and I was like, all right, that worked, but it's gone forever. So you mean you write these lines? They're not, you know, I mean, my, my brother's pieces sort of, you know, live on. I mean, they show them in a zillion different places. They, so it feels sometimes like, wow, I'm spending a tremendous amount of time to make this lead in perfect. And it, you know, vanishes into the ether. So uh, they don't keep it paired with the movie ad infinitum. They just. Every, every lead in you see on TCM is new. And it has been that way for 29 years, 30, 30th anniversary and, next year. And when you, and when you run the same movie again in a couple of years, you do a new intro. That's what I'm saying. Every, I, I've written, you know, also told, I mean, sometimes we've shown Casablanca without a lead in, I suppose. Well, definitely on TCM, but we've aired Casablanca more than any other movie. I'm making the number up, but it's around 350 times. And, uh, it's basically had, you know, for the 280 times that it's been, uh, that, that, it, that there's been an intro with it. It has been a fresh introduction every time. And we repeat some information, obviously, but this is, but, yeah, uh, this is closer to a sitcom than you would think because right. the same premise rolls around at least once or twice a year. Oh boy. He's got girl troubles. Yeah. We need a whole new batch of girl trouble jokes. <laughs> right, and that's you right. have to just crank them out. Now, Josh, you don't because your intro stay married to the piece. And yet speaking of girl troubles. Yeah. <laughs> let's go to Dateline. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, how, how do you get this information? I, I am guessing here's what it looks like from the outside. Then you correct me. It looks like they drop a ton of legalese documents on your desk and you and an associate producer have to kind of cobble together something that makes sense along with, and by dropping on your desk, it could be uh, literal documents or it could be footage, uh, edited yeah. footage already. Or do you get a full blown piece and then you have to do something with it? How involved are you in the well, arc of, this, of these pieces? Cause the arcs oh, make all the difference. Dateline, oh yeah, no, that's no. the reason it's better. The arc yeah, works. That is, that is that is the reason it's better. Yeah, we're better at this. Uh, we, uh, I'm usually involved in the story from 
the get go. Uh, every now and then they call well, and not say, from the murder. A... You're not <laughs> well, the actual murder. We I haven't like sunk that there. low, have we? I like to get there right as the person is fleeing the scene, <laughs> right? right? I mean, if they're going out the back door. I'm coming in the front door. Usually, somebody's right there. bleeding no. out, and you're literally yeah. like, "I'll call nine one one, but I have to go do my but, job." But first, right? Is there anything you'd like to tell me? Um, no, but I mean, once you know, for example, um, we come to these stories in a lot of different ways. We read the papers all over the country every day. Um, police departments call us, people we've worked with before, prosecutors call us, uh, local stations call us and say, I don't know how this is going to end, but this certainly sounds like the beginning of a Dateline story. So-and-so is missing and it seems weird and the husband seems weird and, you know, there's this odd factor in it and you should start. And so we start making calls and we start booking people. And frequently I get assigned around then uh now it's we we usually wait until the trial is over because like at the end of the the audience likes an ending you know you don't want to hear you know so who killed mary well the trial's next year good night like like you want to hear bill got convicted he's doing life stay tuned for your late local news that's that's how it works and so I'll be involved in how we lay it out pretty much from the beginning. I mean, I always tell them that stories in which the obvious suspect ends up being the guilty party, like we shouldn't even be doing those. The template you really want is the law and order template in which, you know, yeah. it begins with the body being found and then it looks pretty clearly like it's this person. And then, oh, wait, it can't be that person. It must be this person. And then you're like, well, wait, that that's wrong. That person had an alibi. And then it's somebody you didn't expect or hadn't even talked about. That's the perfect story. Um, obviously, there aren't they all aren't all like that. But we do sort of sit down and work with the narrative uh, till, you know, so that we leave the audience around as many corners as we can. Now, we're always like, you know, sort of prisoners of the truth. Like, we're not going to say. You know, Bill was a suspect when he wasn't a suspect. Right. Uh, And whoever, you know, whoever is um, uh, whoever is uh, um, uh, is arrested, gets arrested. We're not we're not keeping that a secret. Um, Somebody's calling me right now. Hang on one second. Let me just go for it. I've got no, no, I don't right want to hear. I can talk to him. I don't want to. I don't want to talk to them. I just want them to stop calling. I don't <laughs> know who it is. It's probably that guy calling me about my car warranty, which I'm actually very interested in. Uh, I keep Could missing. Him. You know who it is? It's uh, Dick Wolf, yeah. who now wants residuals. That's right. Because yeah. I, I said you're giving it away. <laughs> yeah, I said the words "law and order." And I think we have to pay. Um, yes, exactly. So, yeah. So. You know, we the producer of each story and I sit down and figure out like how we're going to lay it out, right? Uh, and that frequently is done sort of you know, even before we've done all the interviews. Um, but certainly, once we've done the interviews, that may change a little bit because somebody's great or somebody's such a great character, you're going to want them in every single part. You know, either six acts in an hour or twelve acts in two hours. Uh, Man, I'll tell you, I just did an hour the other day. This thing that aired last Friday on Laredo was an hour. And that was like, 
having the afternoon off. It was so much easier than doing two hours. I was like, wow, there's like nothing. You know, I remember when an hour of TV felt like very, very daunting. Now it's like, you just like, oh yeah, that's fine. Uh, when do you these fly two hours in? take forever. When, do you, you know, when does the production decision come that this, uh, this, this crime is worth it? We're sending you to Rapid City yeah. to work on the Sturgis biker murders or whatever. Uh, well, like that um, made Ben ill. He had to leave. Yeah. Yeah. He passed out. Um, Sturgis Biker. If you ever need yeah. that for any future family. You know, John, you. John Sturgis and Preston Sturgis, not related. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, uh, well, we make the decision sort of, I mean, when, when everybody's booked, when enough people are booked and we want to go, we, we want to go in and get them. I mean, there's no law that the prosecution and the defense you know, have to be ready the same week. So frequently we have to go back a couple of times. Usually the cops and the prosecutor won't talk to you until the thing's over. So you got to wait for the verdict. But right. you don't have to wait for the best friend. to. For, you don't have to wait for the verdict to get the best friend or the parents or go to the scene or, uh, you know, uh, talk to coworkers. And so sometimes we do that early on. And also if you do that early on, you can lock some people up and then they won't talk to the competition, which is sort of what you want. Right. But but we're sort of we're sort of working on the narrative and the story from very early on. We agree on sort of what it's going to be. The producer sends a draft with generally all the sound in there. And then I pretty much rewrite the entire thing. Wow. And how long does that take you? The rewrite. Three, four days. Wow. That yeah. seems. uh Hi, I was going to shoot for an hour, but you know, I'm used to uh, all right. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a couple of minutes each of those days. So yeah, I go to your and go, not funny, not bad. Yeah, I'll punch this out. That's out, kind of the way. Out, out. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure the producers would have. Well, now, now let's <laughs> never get about, queasy. Let's... Let me ask you this before I forget it, because I will forget it. Yeah, is there ever any time, whether it's at LAX on departure, whether it's just about to walk? into a door and I know you're a journalist and we'll get into some of your past gigs as well, but is there ever a time when you just go, Oh, yeah, I got to ask these questions of this person and, no, and never, no, no, never. love it. Always love it. Uh, no, this has been a great job. Um, I covered politics for a really long time before I went to Dateline and I was not into true crime when we started doing it. And now I am, thinking that I enjoy this more than I ever enjoyed covering politics, uh, which I didn't see coming. Uh, let me just say one more thing. One of the things, you know, we talked about humor before. One of the things that's just about, uh, that's very risky in this business when you're telling stories about murders is to say anything funny because the people, you know, that this story happened to, there's nothing funny about that. Um, uh, it's the event that changed their lives. And like, there's like two parts of their lives. There's the part up until that person was killed. And there's the part now and right. they're not going to be okay. And this idea that there's something out there called closure is pretty much bullshit. So really? yeah. Yeah. People, people might get better. People, you know, might, you know, people can sometimes figure out a way to move on with their lives, particularly if, you know, they have other children or some other reason to keep going. But uh, the idea that somehow the criminal justice system is a therapist that sets things right, that's a myth that people like to believe. But the people who 
who are on the business end of these murders, the families, the friends, the loved ones, they're not okay. And they're not going to be okay. That stays with them forever. And the idea that like, well, now the murderer has been locked up. So now everything's back to normal. We're equal. We're even again. That's not, that, that's not real yeah. life. So when you're telling these stories, like, can you say something funny? Yeah, but it's about the murderer. It's not right. about you. You, you got to pick else. the villain, which is yeah, which yeah, actually yeah. a plank straight out of standup. Is 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 you make the joke on either yourself or the villain, and you're not right. in a position to make the joke on yourself. So you got to find the bad guy or the right. bad. That's right. And 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 make the joke on them. Right. You That's guys, correct. it seems grew up in what I would call a literate household is Ben. Does that feel about right? Oh yeah. Very. I mean, it was so literate that I didn't speak in class until I was like, until high school. I mean, I just thought I can't do this. I'm not, you know, my, my brother's 12 years old. I know it, it seems he looks older than 12 years older than I am, but it's it's only 12 (laughs) years. And, uh, he, uh, you know, and he, so when I'm five, he's 17 and he was so smart and so funny. And, uh, um, and my folks were both, both mom and dad, dad sort of legendarily, but mom, very quick and very smart, unbelievably well-read. Um, and so, yeah, man, I, I, it was hard for me to figure out until I was like in my teens, how to, how to be confidently get a word. And I mean, they included me in everything, but I was very shy. So yeah, it was an unbelievably literate household. And I, you know, grew up in the seventies and then into the eighties. So like, you know, I didn't read, I watched television because it was, you know, like who read, you know, I think the first book I read by choice, like was like the summer after my junior year of high school. I mean, I just resisted sort of everything about the, I mean, I read the paper, but it was mostly the sports section. Um, And so it took a long time. Screw all these books on these shelves. Totally. It was just, it was was super, it was like they did, they represented uh, a part of the family that I felt like I was never, ever, ever going to get or be included in, even though no one excluded me from it. And they were always encouraging. It was just all, it was just all that baggage that I just carried because I was so sort of dazzled by the conversations of these grownups, my brother included, you know, going on around me growing up, I think. So are you drawn maybe to the gig you have or the most visible gig because of that? Cause you're erudite and fun and they make the set look like it's a cocktail party and there's people just off there having drinks and martinis and you're talking about classic movies and you're, you're glib. It feels completely off the cuff stylistically. Well, I mean, that's about, you know, like if you ask me what I do for like the main job, I don't know whether my brother would answer the same way. I know he doesn't, he's not afraid of this word, certainly. But I mean, I think like, what's my job? I'm a, I got my work at Turner Classic Movies and it's become my career. I've been there 20 years this year. I got to, oh, I got to show my brother this. Wow. We're actually having lunch later. But they, they, they did. They got me a watch. Um, wow. uh, the, wow. uh, super nice. Um, but 20 years at, um, at TCM, but I, but I'm a broadcaster, right? I mean, that's, sort of the job. And I like that job. Right. I mean, I still think that's like, you know, that's, that's Walter Cronkite. That's, you know, Dan Patrick, that's um, David Letterman, right. These are the people who I, you know, admired who were great at the Johnny Carson people who were great at that job. Um, And uh, 
so yeah, I, 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 I'm just, um, that's what I'm, uh, I like, I like that gig. I, 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 I'm so fortunate to have the job that sounds cheesy, but I, I love it that it enables me to, to do these things, right. To, but it took a long time to be able to feel confident to be myself, which there is some glibness in there, but you know, for a while you thought Robert Osborne is here. There's a template for how to do this. You know, you can't, uh, imitate him because you'll fail. Right. Yeah. But you also can't, you know, you can't jump up and down and be like, Hey, Hey, look at me, look at me. I'm doing this differently. Right. You just have to yeah. sort of subtly find. And thankfully they gave me you know, 11 or 12 years to, to find my voice, which does not happen in, in, in most yeah. jobs. That's, that's, that's cable. Um, yeah. So, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I should have been clear. I'm a cable TV broadcaster. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't make that point. Is that the dividing line at the family reunions is he's cable and your network is that it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the kids table. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's not even a table. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, we don't get 12 years to, uh, to prove ourselves around here, but, uh, Look, you know, uh, my story is actually almost uh, is very similar, which is, you know, I uh, I started behind the camera at ABC News and then um, through a uh, either very smart move or a very strange miscalculation by Carl Bernstein, who no one remembers, was actually an executive at ABC News briefly um, in in between his various print careers. it was Carl's idea that I become a reporter on on camera reporter. So uh, so they trained me for uh, something less than a year and a half at the affiliate in Washington D.C., which was a lot of fun uh, where I already lived. And then uh, and then they brought me back as a correspondent. And and I was miserable as an ABC News correspondent. First of all, they didn't like me very much, uh, and they. Uh, they complained a lot about sort of how I looked and how I dressed and my voice. They hate it was like it. hanging out with Ben. <laughs> it was. That's what they said. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, it was a lot like being at home. And uh, uh, and ABC sent me um, to probably I'm guessing maybe fifty thousand dollars worth of voice coaching uh, to this woman in New York who was then the, the big voice coach for like not just. TV, but like everybody. And I would go to, um, I'd go to, I'd fly to New York. Um, I was based in Miami, but I would fly to New York and I would go to her office and I would, uh, I would sit in her outer office and I could hear her in her office screaming at the person whose appointment was before mine. Right. And while like, while I was listening to that, I would look at her walls which were all headshots of people from news, uh, elsewhere in broadcasting, Broadway, TV and film actors, people in politics. I remember the first, uh, the, the, the older President George Bush was there, Lee Iacocca, people from industry. And they'd all written the same thing on their photograph, which was, uh, Lillian, without you, none of this would have happened. Right. Some version of that. Right. And I used to look at that wall, these dozens and dozens of photos of successful people. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be up there. Uh, (laughs) And then the door would open and some local anchor would walk out from Lillian's inner office and she'd be smoking from the amount of heat that had been generated in that room. Right. And she'd kind of like like wobble out. 
And then, uh, and then Lillian would be like, Mr. Mankiewicz. And I'd be like, <laughs> and I would go in and then she would shout at me for a while. And she did everything she could to stamp out this voice. I did everything I could to stamp out this voice because I wanted them to like me. And so I tried very hard to sound like a much more sort of traditional, you know, FM DJ broadcaster, which is like, you know, what they wanted, or at least what they thought they wanted, but I couldn't do it. I went in with this voice. I came out with this voice years later. It, um, uh, uh, when does it flip in your uh, head or a, in your boss's heads? And they go, this is actually an asset. He has I remember exa- a different I remember exactly what it was. I remember exactly when it was. I had quit ABC News because they clearly were not fans of mine, nor I of theirs. And uh, Josh used to say that he the only reason he never got fired in four years, four years, right, at ABC was because yeah. he, he never made enough money for them for, to think it was a big enough. Be like, let's fire Mankiewicz. Like he's making forty four thousand dollars a year. Something might happen. Let's just keep him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, somebody yeah. literally told me that they had put me on the list. That's actually a true story. That they had actually put me on the list of you know this was in the eighties when they were shedding people. And uh, and they they put me on a list of people they were going to can. And the accountants were like, uh, that doesn't count. Like you don't get to say you're releasing eleven people. That no, you're only releasing ten and like a third. Of, you know, like you're gonna have to somebody else is gonna have to go if you want to put him on the list. And so they were like, all right, screw it. So that's one reason why I did not get canned. But they certainly would have done it in any other way. I quit ABC. I went to WCBS in New York, and that's where I sort of found my own voice and where I sort of started getting appreciated for me being me. And that's when I. I mean, I remember exactly sort of when it was that I realized that I had done a story the way I wanted to. I'd said some snarky things in it. I'd used the voice that I was born with. And management was like, that was great. Do more of that. And that changed everything. And since then, you know, I I have been myself uh, for better or worse. Do you remember this story? It was about Jessica Hahn, who was the woman that uh, Jim Baker was – was caught with she lived on Long Island. I was Long Island correspondent then. And so we went out to her house and um uh and so and she didn't want to talk but she I'm not did sure come I like out. that pause. <laughs> and she <laughs> went out to her she, house and uh... <laughs> we went out to her house and she didn't want to come out but then eventually she did step out onto her porch and she said about 19 words. Like she only said a couple of very short things. Of course, I turned that into like two and a half minutes, yes. right? <laughs> like I, like I, we slowed down what she said. It was great. And, uh, and sadly she had, uh, uh, and so then we did this kind of snarky piece about how, you know, she had figured into this thing. Uh, and then after that, after she came out and she was like this, you didn't want to talk. Then suddenly like somebody had gotten a hold of her and she was on Donahue and she was on the, you know, the cover of people. And there was this whole PR thing associated with her. And so we kind of did a piece about how, you know, her profile had changed and some, you know, some professional had gotten a hold of her and she had a PR team. Now we did that story. And that was, uh, uh, I remember thinking like that was kind of a fun story to do. And it was one that I did sort of with my own voice, literally and figuratively. I remember when I first uh, started to incorporate talking to other humans <laughs> just in my life, which was, you know, probably my early 20s. Um, but then to transfer it to something akin to what either of you do. I was Largely unable to do it successfully. 
Uh, ben, I spent some time briefly trying to be a little bit of a correspondent in a funny way with celebs and trying to make the piece funny. And I, I was just horrible. I would, you know, sweat and, and not, have, you know, uh, I remember, I think I was talking to Mariska Hargitay once and, and I just was like, you know, I couldn't, nothing, none of the charm I may have had as a stand up translated. And yet I see you on these and I'm guessing these are a little juicier pieces for you. When you're talking to Tom Hanks on an extended Tom's helping host a day or a two day or a weekend of whatever, and you are nonplussed. I I am amazed. Well, well, the the thanks. The um, I mean, it took a little time, right? You you first always thought all these people, especially uh, foreigners, Europeans, the fame, you know, the 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 Sophia Lorenz and the Max von Sydow. I thought these people are going to see right through me, right? They're gonna they are going to uncover what a giant fraud I am instantly. Uh, Sophia told me, Sophia told me later that she did. Yeah, yeah totally. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, uh, and of course, yeah. both of them, one, by one, the way. Yeah. One zero, she said, except I think she said Zed, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what really give, so it took a little time, but I interviewed David Byrne long form yesterday for a thing that's coming up later on. And, and, you know, as I had did with Bruce Springsteen, like that, you know, when you're, the, I'm now comfortable generally around movie people, but you know, I thought, you know, and I know, admire and like David Byrne a lot and, and know his music to the extent that, a you know, a old fan from the 70s at Talking Heads knows his music and he's got an Oscar win for The Last Emperor. But I, I was scared. What if we what if this conversation gets specific about music and then I'll get then he'll expose me. And of course, he was lovely, funny and charming and he wanted to talk about movies. But what really helps is the is that you're given the structure. Right. I mean, when I'm talking to Tom Hanks, it's for. TCM or CBS Sunday morning when I'm talking to, to David Byrne, or Paul Thomas Anderson, which also happened yesterday, like it's in the framework of TCM. And once you're once you realize that once you're able to say to yourself convincingly that it's OK that I'm here, I belong here and I don't have to prove what I know. I know what I know. Uh, right. And and the greatest skill, I hope, is what you're seeing, if it's even a skill, is, you know, you prep and I'm ready and I know a lot about them and I can go in a lot of directions. But mostly it's a feeling that you that they're comfortable. Right. And if they're comfortable, they're going to say something interesting. And and the audience, whether it's live or whether they're watching it on television, is going to feel like it was worth their time because they learned a little something, even if they can't pinpoint it. They're like, well, that was an interesting story on Harrison Ford. I feel like I like him a little more or I know a little something, even if they can't pinpoint what it is that's new. Maybe there was nothing new, but he seemed at ease himself. He he offered a little yeah. bit of himself to the audience. That's what you want. Well, and, you know, and, and getting people to relax and be themselves is it in itself an enormous talent because nearly everybody now, whether they're a politician or in my business, a murderer sits down in front of the camera with talking points, with an yeah. agenda and with a speech they want to make and getting through that is not as easy as you think it's going to be. Sometimes you got to let them make that little speech and then the actual interview yeah. starts. And one of the great things about my brother is he's got these two different jobs. I mean, he's got TCM, 
in which he talks about movies, watches them, talks about them, and explains them to you. Uh, and then he's also got this job on CBS Sunday Morning in which he interviews the people who made the movies and who are in the movies. And that's an entirely different job, but it's all kind of part of the same thing. And it's like the, it's like the perfect one-two punch. Yeah, it's Make very comfortable. And uh, they'll say something interesting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's and you don't have to think you're not going to break news. It's this idea that because, as Josh said, like so many of these people are very good on camera. They're at ease. They're comfortable. It's nice when they're not right. Like, uh, uh, but they're they are. I mean, it's a terrible, chewy phrase, but I mean, they are professional question answerers. Right. So, you know, you know, you're not going to you're not going to fluster Michael Douglas. Right. Inconceivable. Right. He knows how to do this. So you want to let him do his thing. And it's it. And what he does is interesting. I'm not knocking it, but I always want like you got him. I always think of it as like I'm leaning back in my chair right now. Right. So you you want them to be leaning back in their chair to where it's slightly off the ground. And ooh, was it going to you don't want it to fall over because that embarrasses them. Right. And then everything's lost if they fall down. But you want them slightly uneasy, like. They, because then they'll say something different, even if, and I don't mean like revelatory, they're not going to go deep. They're not, might necessarily tell them about their, something horrible about their parents or, or something personal about their relationship, but they will just reveal a little something different than maybe they normally would have. And then I feel like, okay, I got it. I got one authentic moment and that can lead to many more. But even if you get one, I feel pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Davis, who, uh, is a uh, is an uncle of ours and who uh, who won a uh, won an Oscar for uh, the documentary film Hearts and Minds about the Vietnam War and I think an Emmy for a thing called The Selling of the Pentagon at CBS Reports um, and was a very accomplished documentarian once said to me that an interview wasn't a success unless you got them to tell you something that you didn't already know when you went in and something that they didn't want to tell you. And, uh, and, and that's a pretty good standard. Yeah, that's right. 